Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. You've joined us for Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject and we have guests on the show that are experts in their field. To the greatest extent possible, we stay away from <coughs> politics and instead concentrate on research, facts, and the experience and insight of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrative solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns all the way up through municipal, state, and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Joe Moravchik, and partnering with me today is Bruce Moreland. Bruce has co-hosted the KYMN Climate Show with Alan Anderson for four years and is active in the Citizens Climate Lobby. Bruce also has a monthly column in the Faribault and Northfield newspapers. And the man sitting across from me is Joe Moravchik, a retired police officer and longtime coach and administrator of athletic teams. Joe has also taught courses including police science and was once a candidate for the Minnesota State Legislature. Today on Public Policy This Week, our <coughs> guest is Tom Hauser from KSTP Channel 5 Eyewitness News, St. Paul, Minneapolis. We'll be discussing with Tom this morning his long and distinguished career in journalism, the importance of journalism in a democratic society, and seeing as Tom is a political reporter and host of a television program about politics and public affairs, we'll get a few perspectives from him on this month's midterm elections as well. Tom started at Channel 5 in 1992 after reporting and news anchoring jobs in Austin, Minnesota, Fort Myers, Florida, and Des Moines, Iowa. After covering the law enforcement beat at the Twin Cities for several years, Tom began covering the Minnesota politics in 1997. He hosts the At Issue Public Affairs program on Sunday mornings. Tom is also an author. In 2002, he wrote Inside the Ropes with Jesse Ventura, a book about the remarkable four-year term of Governor Jesse Ventura. About his education, uh, in 1983, he received a bachelor's degree in journalism and political science from the University of St. Thomas. And in 1992, he earned a master's degree in journalism and mass communication from Drake University. Tom has earned a number of awards from news reporting, including Emmy Awards for his coverage of the 2002 plane crash that killed Senator Paul Wellstone, and for stories that helped solve the 1970 murder of St. Paul police officer Jim Sackett. In 2007, Tom was also honored with the St. Paul Police Department Chief's Award, one of the highest civilian honors in the department, for his reporting on the Sackett case. Tom has received four Emmy Awards for Ad Issue, including one in 2015 for a special about U.S. relations with Cuba after, tra after, after Tom traveled to Cuba himself. He's also earned two Emmys as a television host for the Minnesota State High School Hockey Tournament on KSTC-TV Channel 45. In 2014, Tom was induced in the silver, or inducted into the Silver Circle of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, for significant contributions to the television industry for over 25 years. Tom was born in Minneapolis and grew up in Edina, graduating from Edina West High School. He lives in the Twin Cities with his wife and four children. Tom enjoys building his annual backyard hockey rink, reading, golfing, and running. He has completed over 30 marathons. 
Tom also serves to raise funds for life-saving ataxia research and care. That is research and care at the University of Minnesota for brain, nerve, and muscle disorders. Welcome, Tom, to Public Policy This Week. It is our pleasure to have you on the program. Joe and I are in the... uh, Thank you. I was going to say we're in the beautiful, sunny downtown Northfield, but you're joining us on Zoom. Where, Where are you located? I'm up in the southwest metro and currently looking down at the backyard hockey rink that you referenced. <laughs> I, I built it. Uh, I, I was supposed to get it, most of it built on Sunday, but then the Vikings game went on for about nine hours. Oh, yeah. And so I was literally, from time to time during timeouts, I'd run out and haul some of the, the boards down to the backyard. Then I'd come in and watch some of the game, and then I'd run back out. Uh, needless to say, I did not get it built all on Sunday. <laughs> I had to finish it up on Monday, but... And then it, it won't stop snowing since then. So hopefully at some point I'll be able to finish up that project and, and actually get some ice in. Excellent. Let's get into our interview. Um, as a rule, we do not talk about politics on our program. So let's talk about <laughs> politics in our first segment. The 2022 midterms are now in the books, mostly in the books. I have friends from around the state and country And during our political discussions this fall, they would ask me if the Republican Party had a chance to win in Minnesota. The governor's race, attorney general, secretary of state, the local house races. And they'd ask about my thoughts on the coming red wave. I simply told them, no, it's not going to happen. This despite Republicans having favorable issues to develop and run on. Inflation, high gas and home heating prices, crime, restrictive, restrictive COVID policies, the failure of oversight in the feeding our future fraud scandal and an unpopular president. Tom, you've been covering politics for a long time. Were you surprised that the Republican candidates were not more successful in both the state and national elections? Why were Republicans not more successful in the midterms? Was it ineffective Republican issue development and messaging, effective Democratic messaging on abortion and, and perhaps the January 6th riot? Poor Republican candidates, the influence of former President Trump, the large disparity of money that the Democratic Party has over the Republicans, perhaps simply better campaign strategy. Again, were you surprised by the election results and why weren't the Republicans more successful? You know, I I was surprised. I'm not surprised that it wasn't a huge red wave. I was surprised that it was barely a ripple. Uh, I think today... Probably the U.S. House will officially uh, go into Republican hands with uh, Tom Emmer from the 6th Congressional District, uh, having been elected as the third most powerful person in that majority caucus. Uh, So uh, although that's going to happen, the Senate will remain in control of Democrats. And here in Minnesota, that I cover the most closely, uh, a big surprise that Democrats not only held on to the House, but also took a one-seat majority in the Senate. And in Minnesota, I think the biggest factors were uh, abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I had guessed that maybe Democrats were overplaying that hand uh, a little bit. Turns out maybe that's not true. Uh, The fact, though, is that they had a huge monetary advantage that you alluded to over Republicans. And I don't just mean by a little bit. I mean by it's 
it's hard to even compare that they're on the same playing field. Uh, the Democrats, the DFL party in Minnesota raised $30 million. 19 million of that was for state races, 18 million that they had to divide up and could be used for federal campaigns. But even if you just go down to the 19 million they could use for state campaigns, their Republican party counterparts only raised $1.1 million. Uh, no comparison. And then you have the Alliance for a Better Minnesota that in late August started running a series of what turned out to be seven campaign ads vilifying Scott Jensen, primarily over the abortion issue. They spent what will ultimately be around $15 million uh, vilifying the Republican candidate. I do believe that rippled all the way down into the legislative races as well. You hear a lot about people ticket splitting. Oh, maybe I'll vote for my Republican House member, but I will vote for Governor Walls, who's a Democrat. That doesn't happen as much as you think it's going to. So if people aren't going to vote for Jensen for governor, a lot of them aren't going to vote for the Republican candidate in their local district either. So I think the biggest factors were the abortion issue, the monetary advantage the Democrats had, and to a lesser extent, the Trump effect. It wasn't huge in Minnesota because Trump never came here and campaigned. He did endorse Jensen and Kim Crockett, both of whom lost fairly handily. But I, I, I don't think Trump was as big of a factor in Minnesota, not as big as the monetary advantage for Democrats and the abortion issue. That's a, that's an interesting take on that, because uh, obviously I was kind of thinking there was going to be a, a red wave as well. And I, I guess I'd been reading the wrong press. <laughs> anyway, I read in the Wall Street Journal this week that 25 to 40 percent of midterm voters identified as independents. And that's 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 middle, the centrists, if you will. And Republicans did a better job than the Democrats during this election of turning out their own voters. But they lost with independents. So the swing voters were the difference. Based on your experience in covering politics, were there, are there that many independents, 20 to 40 percent? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, I, I don't know if it's if it's 40 percent, but all, all of our polling always indicated, and, and this is borne out to be pretty much true when we get actual election results, uh, about 33 to 35 percent Republicans, 33 to 35 percent Democrats, Yes, they're about even. And again, this is how people self-identify. And then generally around 25 to 30% independents. And those numbers may add up to a little more than 100, but they fluctuate. But it's roughly a third, a third, a third. And swing voters are important in every election, unless it's just a total blowout. We, you know, we've had presidential elections here uh Clinton against Bob Dole in 96, uh, some of those uh, elections where the independents are not that big of a factor. But in close races, swing voters, the independent voters are always important. And many people don't identify as either a Republican or a Democrat, and they see themselves as a little bit of both. Uh, like Jesse Ventura used to always say he was uh socially liberal and fiscally conservative. I think there's a lot of people in Minnesota who are like that one way or the other. 
That's, that's interesting. I sometimes use that as a test. I tell people if you are socially liberal and fiscally conservative, you're probably a Democrat. If you're fiscally conservative and socially liberal, you're probably a Republican. And it's the, the point of that is it's what you think comes first that tells what you're really interested in. So going, yes. back, going back to the independent voters then, uh, what did they want? I mean, were they, were they swayed by these hot-button issues that the hate you know, advertising was using, or were they looking deeper than that? Well, I think, I think a lot of it, again, came down to that abortion issue and the fact that there was so much effective negative advertising against Scott Jensen and by extension against really uh, other Republicans mm-hmm. uh, because they all kind of get painted with the, the same brush because there's it, it's hard to fathom that independents would look at at inflation and you know uh, gas prices every time they go to the grocery store and some of those kitchen table issues and say yeah I think the current people who are in charge, who are in charge, should stay in charge. Uh, it, it had to be something more than that. And I think in in the case of Minnesota, uh, a lot of it came down to that abortion issue and the fact that Republicans or uh, Democrats had such a financial advantage that they were able to wage a get out the vote effort that, frankly, Republicans just can't match and haven't been able to match over the last several election cycles, especially when it comes to the early voting. Republicans have gotten to the point where they're so opposed to the early voting on principle that they refuse to engage in it and encourage their supporters to engage in it and get those votes in the bank early on and count on people to show up on election day when who knows what might get in their way. It could be bad weather. It could be by that time they're so sick and tired of what's going on that they're not going to vote. Something may come up in the news cycle that causes them to vote against Republicans. Uh, They just refuse to accept that early voting is likely here to stay. And until they figure out a way to embrace it, uh, I think they're going to continue to face these challenges on Election Day. You can't just assume that this huge red wave is going to show up all in one day. That is maybe our father and grandfather's way of doing elections. Mm-hmm. That's not how they're doing elections today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Tom, politicians can be loose with the truth on the campaign trail, in TV commercials and in TV sound bites. In the days leading up to the election, the Washington Post was critical of President Biden's rhetoric, calling his statements false and misleading and errors in fact. We only need to look back to his predecessor to see that he's certainly not the only president to do it. Both on Channel 5 Eyewitness News and on your program at issue, you fact-check candidate statements and campaign ads. I wish there was more of it. Why is that important to you? I'd imagine it is about integrity for Channel 5 and integrity for yourself and the news pieces that you research and write and broadcast. How important is integrity to your reporting? Why in our society are politicians allowed to make false and misleading statements without, seemingly without accountability? Yeah, and, and we often get criticized for airing these ads that uh, sometimes we will call out for being false. And the, the problem is that uh, 
we operate on public airwaves, uh, much like you do. And we have uh, certain guidelines that we have to follow. One of the guidelines is uh, obviously free speech. We're big believers in free speech. And the FCC does not allow us to turn down ads from candidates, uh, even when we might deem them to be false or grossly misleading. We do have a little more latitude when it comes to ads that are put forth by interest groups that are not actually candidates running, but we tend to treat those much the same way we do as candidates do because we don't want to stifle free speech. Now, if they put those on our airwaves and we look at them and go, something doesn't look right. I mean, there are some ads I look at and I just know because of how closely I cover this, I just know something isn't true. Mm -hmm. And so we will call it out. We'll do a truth test and, and we'll give them a grade ranging from an A, which is very rare, which uh, down to an F, which believe it or not, is quite, is not quite as rare. Uh, I handed out two F's uh, this year, one of them on an ad uh, about uh, Tyler Kistner in the second congressional district where uh, a special interest group, and then it was later followed up by Angie Craig's campaign and I think another interest group, claiming that Tyler Kistner had the stated position of being opposed to abortion, even in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of a mother. That just blatantly was not true. Mm-hmm. Tyler Kistner has never said that. It was never on his website. Uh, frankly, if, if, if he had said it, uh, it would have been in the ad. Uh, so we, we did the truth test. We gave it an F. The pushback we got was, well, yeah, he does favor, uh, is opposed to those abortions because he's in favor of leaving it up to states to decide on the abortion issue. And some states have decided that they are going to not allow abortions, even in the case of rape and incest. Well, that's like three steps down the road to connect Tyler Kistner to that. And frankly, that was just untrue. Uh, so it got an F. So so we do hand out Fs, but it, it didn't really matter. We gave it an F. And then Angie Craig's campaign followed up with their own ad saying the same thing. And then there was another ad saying the same thing. So it's like, you know trying to put your finger in a dam you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to stop the flood you can you know just try to inform the public as best you can and uh hope viewers or uh, voters and viewers uh take time to research these issues themselves well i'm i'm hoping that they're doing that because uh there's lots of issues that come down the pike where everybody's screaming their favorite tropes um I got to take a station break here and tell you that you're listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Bruce Moreland alongside my co-host Joe Moravchik, and we're talking with Tom Hauser from KSTP Channel 5 Eyewitness News out of the Twin Cities. Tom is a television journalist that has over 30 years of writing, reporting, and program hosting experience. i can I, can I jump in with a follow-up? I have a quick follow-up. I had a friend once who taught journalism at a local liberal arts school, and she claimed that uh, the Columbia School of Journalism had modified the rules for how you could report politicians, and that as long as you put quotes around what they said, you really weren't expected to do the fact-checking 
before you reported is have you ever heard that trope or that meme oh i i would i would be stunned if if that were true um i you know you every quote we hear at even at a news conference whether it be the governor or a member of congress or some special interest group uh we check everything they say we don't we don't let and if they say something that we deem to be outright false, but we just don't use it in the story. Uh, mm. Depending upon the situation, we may point out, by the way, they said this. Uh, this is just not true. But if, if they say something that's not true, we try not to repeat it at all. Excellent. So I, I, I would be surprised if any journalism school is teaching that. Okay. Well, I was curious about that. Thank you. Let's move from the elections to some of Tom's exceptional accomplishments in journalism before we get into the topic of the importance of journalism in a, in a democratic society. Tom, I'm a retired police officer. I've read about the Sackett case from the spring of 1970. I've got to ask you about your role in that case. For our listeners, Jim Sackett was a 27-year-old patrol officer for the St. Paul Police Department. He responded to a medical call for service. The report was a pregnant woman at her home in labor. Officer Sackett responds to the home with a partner, and during his approach or entry, he is shot and killed by a sniper. The medical call was a ruse to draw the police officers to the address and kill an officer. The case was unsolved until a young crime reporter stepped in to investigate 1994. That young reporter was you. In the story, who are Connie Trimble, Ronald Reed, and Larry Clark? Why did they want to harm a police officer? Take it from here. You know, Joe, first of all, thank you for your uh, service as a as a police officer. I think too often these days, uh, the work that police officers do is not valued nearly enough. Reminded of that the other day when I saw on CNN a story about two Kansas City police officers down where my son lives now who saved the life of, a, of an infant child uh, who had uh, was choking uh, and it's just a remarkable story. I don't hear anybody talking about defunding those police officers. But getting back to the to the second case, one of the most uh, fascinating uh, stories I've, I've ever covered. And in fact, uh, even though that was early in my career, I, I sense it will never be topped in terms of uh, the impact we were able to have by telling that story. Uh, in 1970, as you mentioned, Jim Sackett was uh, gunned down in the line of duty. Uh, a young police officer, he was 27 years old. He had just gone back to work uh, after he'd been off on uh, what we would today call paternity leave uh, to as they welcomed the birth of, uh, I can't remember if it was the fourth or fifth child, but he had a young infant at home and other young children as well. Like I said, he was only 27 years old. And he ends up getting shot to death while responding to a call about a woman who was uh, supposedly giving birth uh, in St. Paul, really only a couple miles from the state capitol. Connie Trimble, who you mentioned, is the one who made what turned out to be a fake emergency call mm -hmm. from a payphone about a block from what turned out to be the murder scene. She calls the police about her sister having a baby and can they can they come and help because she can't leave the house and she says she's calling from a payphone because her sister does not have a 
uh, a phone. So the police show up, and it's uh, uh, Jim Sackett and his partner, Glenn Cothy, and they show up, they knock on the door of this house on Hag Avenue, and nobody answers. And so Glenn Cothy says, Jim, I'll go around the back, see if I can get in that way. So while Jim Sackett is standing at the front door, a shot rings out from across the street, hits him right above the badge, hmm. uh, and killed him uh, almost instantly. And Glenn Cothy hears the shot, comes running around the front, sees his partner sitting there in a pool of blood, and he dives over the hood of his squad car, gets on the radio, and calls in uh, for backup that his partner has been shot. It, it turns out uh, the murderers who were later convicted of this, not until 2006, 36 years later, uh, Larry Clark and Ron Reed Jr. Larry Clark has since been released from prison. He was the accomplice. Ron Reed is still in prison. He was the trigger man in this case. The way I got on to the story, and I'll make this very brief, in 1994, there were two police officers gunned down in the line of duty. Um, uh, and I'm sure you remember the case uh, very well, Ron Ryan Jr. and Tim Jones. And in the course of covering that, I was on the police beat back then in 1994. And in the St. Paul paper, they published a list of all the officers who had died in the line of duty. And the, they went back to 1970. And the last one said Jim Sackett, shot by a sniper and killed, case never solved. So after the, after we had covered the Ryan and Jones uh, police murders for uh, a week or two, I went to my news director and said, you know, this Jim Sackett story bears some looking into. I've never heard of this case. And they said, uh, we agree. And they gave me a week to see what I could, I could dig up on it. Hmm. And long story short, I started piecing things together. I had police and court records pulled out of storage that were long lost in warehouses around St. Paul and Ramsey County. We eventually tracked down Connie Trimble, who uh, was now driving a bus, believe it or not, in Denver, Colorado. The station paid for me to go out there. We staked out her apartment when we figured out where she lived, and I ended up... Uh, seeing her as she came home one day and we approached her, me and a photographer and told her we wanted to ask her some questions about the Sackett murder case. And she fell back into her car going, you know, Oh my God, what's happening here? Because it had now been 34 years or 24 years since that had happened. And she eventually invites me up to her apartment. We do an interview with her and she told me a few things that she had never revealed before, largely because we think she forgot the cover story uh, with Ron Reed. She admitted to me that Ron Reed was in the phone booth with her when she made the fake emergency call. Ron Reed had long been the main suspect in the case, but he always had an alibi because Connie Trimble said he was home at her house several miles away sleeping at the time that this happened. Well, once she told me that he was with her in the phone booth, now police could put him a block from the murder scene minutes before it happened. Ultimately, the FBI got involved. St. Paul Police, they reopened the investigation. Uh, they investigated it literally for several more years 
before they were able to then bring charges, go to trial, and they convicted Ron Reed and Larry Clark, as I mentioned, in 2006. So just to give you that timeline, murder happened in 1970. I picked it up in 1994, did stories about it for several years. They made an arrest in, uh, now I've forgotten what year it was, but uh, around 2005 or 2006, they went to trial and they were both convicted. Uh, one of those stories that as a journalist gives you a great deal of, of satisfaction and gratification to know you did some public good, that people who murdered a police officer, somebody who's engaged in a profession that I believe is one of the highest callings, along with the medical profession and military service, uh, to have someone like that gunned down in the line of duty under the circumstances uh, that it happened, uh, to be able to bring killers to justice, or at least play a small role in that, was about as gratifying as you can get for a journalist. What I hope that story wasn't too long and boring. It was incredibly compelling. What an example of exceptional investigative reporting. Yes, I, I'm having an emotional reaction. I, <laughs> I, had, I had too much where I worked. Unresponsive babies, pregnant mothers having babies, a partner killed in a line of duty, hmm. former partner, but we were partners at the time. Uh, so much comes back from my own career. We're getting a little off track, but yeah. Tom, exceptional story. Great, so great compelling. story. Yeah, very compelling. Um, uh, yeah, I got a second. <laughs> up here, uh, Tom. You received your undergraduate diploma in 1983, uh, journalism and political science, at a time when Americans watched CBS, NBC, or ABC for their half hour of evening news. CNN and the idea of around the clock news was in its infancy. First, think back to those college years. Why did you choose journalism as a career? Second, what journalists or news programs were your early influences? And then, now that you have 30 plus years in reporting and anchoring, covering news, crime, politics, what are some of the biggest changes in television journalism that you have seen and experienced during your long career? Yeah, well, it's hard to believe coming up next month, it will actually be 39 years that I've been doing this. I started my career in December of 1983 down in uh, Austin, Albert Lee, uh, Minnesota, my first uh, TV job after I graduated from the University of St. Thomas. I wanted to be a journalist uh, for as long as I can remember. Uh, in, in my old neighborhood, I even uh, had published briefly a neighborhood newsletter. Uh, I loved to learn about things before anybody else did and then tell people about it. Uh, not gossip, but I mean actual news. I, I was never... Never been much for gossip. That's why uh, most of my reporting is pretty straightforward, and I try not to sensationalize anything. And I don't report gossip. I only report facts. And that's been important to me ever since I was a kid. I mean, I was one of those kids. I would watch cartoons when I was a kid, but oftentimes it would be after I read the entire morning newspaper uh, cover to cover. Uh, and I do that to this day. I still get a newspaper <laughs> delivered in my driveway. Because I'm old school that way. I read news online as well, but I still love having a newspaper or a book in my hands uh, because I'm uh, just an avid reader of everything. Uh, news, fiction, nonfiction, you name it. Um, but so I, I, 
the local news was a big influence on me. I used to watch Channel 5 as a kid. My parents did. Uh, we primarily watched Channel 5 and Channel 4 uh, up here. We watched Ron Majors and, uh, and Stan Turner on Channel 5. Before that, I think it was Bob Ryan when I was uh, a, a youngster. And then we watched Dave Moore on Channel 4. I went to high school with some of Dave Moore's kids. And my church was right across the street from where Dave Moore lived. And I, I just had a real connection to the local news. And it was just interesting to see. You could see in one place things that are going on in your community. And so I always enjoyed that. But the interesting thing was I wanted to be a newspaper journalist. I When I went to St. Thomas, I studied newspaper journalism. I applied for newspaper jobs at probably 100 newspapers. Unfortunately, the time I was graduating from St. Thomas in 1983 was when all of the afternoon dailies were starting to shut down. Mm. Remember, we used to have the Minneapolis Tribune in the morning and the Minneapolis Star in the afternoon. That was similar in big cities all around the country. Once those afternoon papers started dying, all those journalists who worked in those afternoon papers were now flooding the job market. So they were taking a lot of the jobs that a young journalist like me might have access to. So I only took one broadcasting class at St. Thomas. It was with Stan Turner, the former Channel 5 anchor, who told me he thought I should give television uh, uh, a shot. He thought I had some talent at it just in these rudimentary stories I would produce in his class. And then one thing led to another, and I ended up getting a, a, a job offer at an ABC affiliate down in Austin, Albert Lee, Minnesota, and I started as the Albert Lee Bureau Chief, which meant I was a one-man band. I worked out of my apartment, shot my own stories, uh, and my my marching orders from the station in Austin were, don't come to the station until you've shot a package, which means something I'm going to put my voice on, and it's going to be a longer format, a VOSAT, which is going to be video and soundbite with an interview, and then a VO, which is just video voiceover that I'd shoot of something going on in Albert Lee. So I had to come up with three stories a day in Albert Lee, Minnesota, which was not easy then. It's probably not easy today. And then I could go into the station and put these stories together uh, over the air. But it was a great way to learn the profession. And I've really loved it ever since. There are some days, like any job, where there gets to be a little bit of sameness, um, one of the reasons I got into this job was because it's something different every day. So even on a day like today, we're in between the election and the legislative session. Not a lot happening today, but I've got a few irons in the fire. And I just don't know what which one of them is going to pop yet. I don't know what I'm going to have on the air yet tonight. But there's some kind of excitement even about that. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to put on the air tonight. And uh, so that's interesting because, like I said, every day is a little bit different. Wow. So you've bought three lottery tickets and you're waiting for one of them to come home. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I hope my odds of getting on the air are better than winning the lottery. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to take us into a slightly different area. Uh, my co-host today is Joe Moravchik, who has been featured in U.S. Hockey, Minnesota Hockey, and Let's Play Hockey Online and print magazines for his work in girls' hockey development and for the recruitment and retention of hockey athletes. You also have done a lot of work with hockey and had the honor of hosting what is truly one of the great annual sporting events in America, 
the Boys and Girls State Hockey Tournament. In fact, you've won two, two Emmy Awards for excellence in television broadcasting for your work at the tournaments. What does the state hockey tournament mean to you? And how great has it been having, uh, as a career journalist, to be part of an event like that? Yeah, and we're proud of those Emmy Awards that we've won. And that's a team effort. They were not just for me, but uh, all of us who put those broadcasts together. And we're very proud of, of what we do. And I've been privileged as a political reporter to be covering hockey for as many years as I have. I think it's going on. 18 years now and who knows how long it will last but it was just interesting how i kind of fell into that and luckily my long uh history of uh being a big hockey fan playing hockey as a kid growing up uh, just being around the game of hockey for so long uh, it's really been an honor and a privilege because the state high school hockey tournament as i'm sure you guys know it's it is a cultural institution in the state of Minnesota. And, and we treat it that way at Channel 45. It is, this is not just another broadcast. We, you know, we, we tell you about the games as they're happening. And again, that's always the focus. But we also try to bring you uh, the history and texture of the high school hockey game and youth hockey in Minnesota and its importance. And I just, I love everything about it. It is, it, it's exciting. It, it never gets dull. And it is something I look forward to every year. It's a nice break from politics. And it's lucky thing is it's just down the street from the state capitol, down at the XL Energy Center. It's amazing how often I see state legislators playing hooky from the capitol and they're down at the games as well. We've interviewed governors on the broadcast. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's just a big deal. And Joe should be applauded for the work he has helped to do to continue developing the girls hockey game, because I really believe Minnesota uh, leads the nation in that area as well. Winnie Brown, the first Ms. Hockey in Minnesota, is a very good friend of mine. She just retired from the Whitecaps after a long and distinguished career. She is still just revered among uh, young female hockey players across the state. In fact, she and I were just texting the other day about we have to get out for dinner one of these days because I want to celebrate her new uh, status as a, as a Hall of Famer and as uh, her retirement from the Whitecaps and just her distinguished uh, career. And the girls' hockey game, it's just amazing how we've seen it grow. We talked earlier in the broadcast about my backyard hockey rink. My kids have all grown up. My youngest is a daughter who is at St. Thomas, and I still build my hockey rink. Not so much. My kids do when they come out for Christmas. They all get out there and play. But we got kids all over the neighborhood, I don't know, 70 or 80 kids. Uh, many of them play hockey, and I have an open rink policy. They can come and skate on my rink anytime they want. Uh, they don't have to ask. They can just come and, and start skating. I just ask that the younger ones wear a helmet. And uh, I say the only time you have to let us know is if you're coming at night, let us know so we can flip the lights on for you. And then a lot of times I'll go out there and join them as well. I love to build uh, just the enthusiasm for the game, uh, just to get out there and play. I don't try to teach anybody how to do anything unless they ask. I just want them to go out and learn to enjoy skating, and especially skating outdoors in Minnesota. Yes. There is nothing better. Like, I wish I had ice out there today with this light snow falling and it's so quiet and peaceful, and all you can hear is the blades cutting through the ice. 
to me, there's nothing better than that. <laughs> Agreed. That's what, are, that's what I remember growing up, skating that night outside the warming house. Wow. Oh, absolutely. Friends gathering. Yeah. Uh, both my daughters played for Winnie. She's fantastic. I'm oh. not sure there's anything better than OS hockey uh, oh, for no, girls she's, hockey. She's awesome. Tom, if I'm not in the building, Excel Energy Center for those tournament games, we're watching your coverage on Channel 45. <laughs> and my wife takes off of work from the, the hospital she works at so we can be at those games or be watching those games. It's a, it's a, it's a great uh, broadcast. And, and I, don't, of, I don't want to give kids any ideas because they've already got them, but even back in the 1970s when I was in high school, we would skip school to go watch high school hockey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now a lot of times the school districts just give up and they just give the kids the day off. Seems pretty smart. <laughs> Tom, one more question about your career in journalism. I grew up in that era of four channels on television and pretty straight-laced programming, black and white TV, although at some point in the early 80s we got a color TV. Then TV adds Sunday morning pro wrestling and we were introduced to Jesse the Body Ventura. There was nothing like him. Uh, his interviews and color commentary with me and Gene Okerlund were so much fun to watch. Jesse, of course, ran for and became the 38th governor of Minnesota in 1999. You covered him. In fact, you wrote a book about your experience with him titled Inside the Roast with, with Jesse Ventura. How much fun was it to cover Governor Ventura? And how was he able to break through and win as an independent candidate? Well, it, it was really an awesome experience. And by the way, shameless plug, Inside the Ropes uh, with Jesse Ventura, still available at Amazon.com. <laughs> it's the time of the year, Christmas uh, season to buy books. Ab- and... Absolutely. And the, the Washington Post even reviewed it and called it a laugh out loud political riot. And it, it was just, it was, it's one of those times in, in my career, kind of the opposite of although in some ways there are similarities, the Sackett case was this one pinnacle of being able to accomplish something and, and bring killers to justice. The Jesse Ventura story was having the privilege of covering something that I don't know the country will ever see again, uh, even though some people tried to draw parallels to Donald Trump's ascension to the presidency. This Jesse Ventura thing was just it was a one-off number. I mean, it was just something nobody saw coming and really a, a remarkable couple of years. And really his pres- his governorship was, I think, divided into a couple of segments. The first two years were just nonstop craziness. We traveled the world with him. I went to Tokyo with the governor. I went to Mexico City. I went to The Tonight Show uh, with Jay Leno, uh, David Letterman, multiple times to all of these. I was on the set of Young and the Restless while Jesse Ventura (laughs) shoots a cameo role. You're just not going to see things like that happen again. And I documented all this in the book. I started keeping notes the moment he was elected because I knew there was going to be a story uh, to tell here. The second half of his governorship was tainted by 9-11 and his reaction to 9-11. All of a sudden, people treated politics a little more seriously. Uh, you got to remember when Jesse Ventura was elected in 98, took office in 99, we were on the, you know, the cusp of the dot-com boom before the bust. And it was just kind of the go-go 90s. Anything goes. And they thought, why don't we give a former wrestler a try? Why not? And so he was elected governor of Minnesota. 
And then he became this worldwide celebrity that started to fade again after year two when he started getting increasing criticism about trying to benefit personally and financially from his role as governor. He stopped trying to build the independent party movement uh, and people saw him as getting more in it for himself as opposed to actually building a, a true third party movement. And then 9-11 happened. He kind of went into hiding a little bit, stopped publishing his schedule. And all of a sudden, it wasn't fun and games anymore. And then ultimately in, in 2002, he chose not to run for re-election. And I am fairly certain if he had run, he was not going to win because of all of the criticism that that he had faced. But I'll tell you, it was an amazing ride uh, while it lasted. It sounds like it. it sounds like it was. I remember parts of that, and it was an amazing time to say the least. Um, yeah, if you read the book, you'll go. God, I forgot that happened. I forgot <laughs> he said that. I forgot he did that. I, um, it really was uh, remarkable, and it's amazing to me how many young people I run into now who don't even know who Jesse Ventura is. Oh, uh, I know. As, as, as Joe, I think Joe, I think it was you that was saying, I mean, I watched Sunday morning uh, AWA wrestling with Vern Gagne and, and all, Scrap Iron Kandaski, the Sodbuster Kenny J. <laughs> I mean, all of these great wrestling names, you know, Mean Gene. And then there was, um, oh, God, who was the the other uh, radio or television announcer? Um who was before Mean Gene Okerlund. I can't think of him. Oh, God, I can picture him. Glasses, balding, short guy. Just can't think of his name. Marty O'Neill. Yeah. Marty O'Neill. There you go. But well, you'd, have, you'd, have the Wal time. you'd have the Waltons on, uh, you know, programs yes. like that. And then Jesse but, would come make it appearance. Yeah, we, we'd be watching wrestling before we went off to church. You know, and I'm one of eight kids. <laughs> yes. We'd all be down there watching wrestling. And my dad usually leading the way. And uh, he was... It was a, it, but it was that culture that gave rise to Jesse Ventura wrestling back then. Professional wrestling was a much bigger deal than it is now. It still has a very fanatical following, but I think its heyday was probably late '80s through the late '90s, and that's what gave rise to Jesse Ventura. Well, a lot of entertainment has changed in the recent times. Um, I just have to tell everybody that you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm Bruce Mornell alongside my co-host Joe Moravchik, and our guest is Tom Hauser from KSTP Channel 5 Eyewitness News out of St. Paul, Minneapolis. Let's transition. The term fourth estate has a long history of being used to refer to powers that often lie outside of the political power structure. In our country, the executive, judicial, and legis legislative branches of government. The fourth estate has been used to label the lawyer class, the bureaucratic class, and the press, journalists, photo photographers, radio announcers, and television broadcasters. Let's focus on the news media. Significant to a democratic society is the role of the press to scrutinize the actions of public officials and political institutions in the interest of a better society, serving as a watchdog that holds the other three estates and the political power structure accountable for their actions. Further, the press has the great responsibility to provide researched, truthful, and fair information to ensure that the public is not misinformed in the dissemination of news. 
So now we discuss the importance of journalism in our democratic society with Tom Hauser. Yeah, okay. and journalism is, is so important. And the, the sad thing now is that the rise of social media has given rise to uh, suspicion uh, about journalism and about whether or not we are biased or not. Because now you have this social media landscape that has popped up where anybody with a, a smartphone and an internet connection can essentially be a journalist, except they don't have to just tell the truth because they're not going to be held accountable. I'm held accountable every day by my bosses, by uh, the public, by advertisers, uh, by all kinds of people who, if, if I report things that are inaccurate or untrue, I'm going to be held to account possibly in a court of law. Hmm. We can get sued for libel or slander or any number of, of things. And we have to be very careful because we are trying to serve uh, the public. And if the public can't trust us, then nobody's going to watch us. Uh, advertisers are not going to buy ads on our airwaves. And the whole enterprise collapses. People in social media uh, don't have those same set of restrictions. Uh, that's why you have seen the rise of so much misinformation. And so it's gotten to the point where even when I report a story that is ironclad and sourced as as well as can be, people will say, well, no, that's not true. Uh, you, you have a bias. You're biased. Mm -hmm. And it, it, you just throw your hands up and you, you don't know. It, it gets hard to even... Uh, combat it, especially uh, on a, uh, a format like Twitter. Uh, you'll, you'll publish a story or retweet a story from the Washington Post to the New York Times, and they'll, they'll say, oh, well, they all they do is report biased news. None of that is true. And again, newspapers have the same set of uh, obligations that we do. If they don't report the truth, People are not going to subscribe to their websites. They're not going to buy their newspapers. They're not going to pay attention to them. And it's amazing to me how many people will not trust the news media in any way, shape, or form because they think that we're all biased one way or another, uh, mostly to the left. Uh, and I, I, I don't know how to say this any more honestly than, than I, I'm about to, but in any given election, I don't care who wins or loses. I just call the balls and strikes. I cover the campaigns. I cover each side as accurately and fairly as I possibly can. And I let the chips fall where they may. The day after an election, or in this case, weeks after an election, when you finally know the results, well, those are the results. Sun is still going to come up the next day. You just move on. There will be another election coming up the next year or two years down the road or four years down the road, and then the battle starts anew. Tom, Rich Larson here. I'm the KYMN News Director, and I, I just wanted to jump in for a second and ask you a little bit about uh, your reaction to social media and people calling you out on Twitter or whatever and saying, oh, you're just another you know, biased journalist. 
I guess I'm actually looking for a little advice, sir, from a, a, a more seasoned journalist than I'm. And this is Edina Homeboy to Edina Homeboy, too, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I get called out on, on, on social media, and it is everything I can do to not respond to these. And I, I, I you know, part of it is my personality. I sit and I stew and I, I have to go take a walk around the block or whatever. How, how do you deal with that? How do you, I mean, how do you ma- <laughs> maintain your composure sometimes in, in, in the face of some of this just crap that gets thrown at you? Well, I do my best to maintain my, my composure. And one way I've, I've learned to deal with it, most of the worst criticism comes from anonymous people on Twitter. They'll have some crazy Twitter handle like Tim Waltz is nuts, you know, whatever. Um, and but you have no idea who it is. And so these people feel no obligation to have any restraint. They can say whatever they want. Generally, I don't respond to those people, although sometimes I do. Um, but not as much as I used to. What I usually do now is block them. I, I didn't used to block anybody. Now I feel no compunction whatsoever about blocking people who will not put their actual name on their social media feed. Right. And so that gives me some empowerment to say, look, it, I'm not going to let you use my Twitter page to spread misinformation or hateful speech. I will block you and I won't look back. Uh, otherwise, if people like our, our Survey USA polling, People would say, oh, your polls are garbage. And then you look at the governor's race where our last poll said Governor Walls was ahead by eight points. He ended up winning by seven. Uh, Turns out it wasn't a garbage poll, but a lot of people on Twitter were trying to tell me that. But, you know, you just you had to wait till Election Day to say, well, see, this was not wrong. And so the, the, the best advice I can give, sometimes it's best if it's somebody who's anonymous, just block them that they're not worth engaging with if they're not willing to put their own name on the stuff they're going to spew on social media. Thank you, sir. I agree. That's I a very good turn point. turn it back to the, uh, the, the actual <laughs> okay. hosts now. Thank you. I think we've covered most of the background information leading up to this next question, and I think you've actually answered it. But this new fifth estate, the social media, uh, is that a challenge to the mainstream in the sense that they have a different funding mechanism, which is to say there are a bunch of amateurs in the basement? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is a challenge. I mean, it, it's really hard to break stories uh, these days because in the old days, I could have a story that I knew only I knew about or was pretty sure I did. And even if somebody else knew, they would have no way of getting the word out on a mass scale. Now anybody can do that. And so it just takes one leak and it's out there. And so whenever you can break a story uh, without it getting on social media first, it's quite a feather in the in the cap. But yeah, because social media really is just a platform for millions of Americans or billions of people across the globe to participate in news dissemination. And there's nothing wrong with that if it's actually accurate information. If people come across a car accident or what have you, a crime scene, and they take pictures, that can actually be a valuable service. Uh, But if they don't have the facts to go with it, that can be harmful if they just start putting things out there that they don't know are true. So it has changed the landscape. It's also increased my workload quite a bit. When I started in this business, there was a 5, 6, and 10 o'clock news. 
Now we do about 15 hours of news a day. Mm. Plus, when I'm done with my story, I have to write a story for our website that then goes on uh, KSTP.com. And I have to be tweeting constantly through the day about whatever it is I'm covering. So it's mm. it, it's been quite a challenge. Yes. Uh, it's one that I welcome <laughs> in most days, but it's a lot of work. And then just trying to keep up with this massive flow of information has become a big challenge. Somebody will say, hey, did you see what so-and-so has on Twitter? And then you go, oh, God, now i got to go chase that down. Oh, and yeah. it's it's a challenge. But like, like any business, you know, you just got to roll with the punches, roll with the times, and try to keep up as, as best you can. Cool. Um, I always like to ask a question, ask our guests this particular question, which is, we I like to find out where the popular media is right and where it is wrong on a subject. So are there any movies that you like or could recommend that do a good job of profiling the work of journalists? Oh, absolutely. My, my all-time favorite, and it probably tops the list of most people's uh, favorites, is All the President's Men. Yeah. Yeah, I get a lot about, of thumbs up here. Yeah, about Watergate. It's just, you know, and, and that was one of the things that really convinced me, yeah, I'm going to get into newspaper journalism because they really they really um, captured the essence of what it can be like to do that shoe leather journalism where you're just out on the streets, you're meeting people in parking ramps and you're, you know, doing all this this crazy news gathering, you're knocking on doors. Uh, it was just, it was fascinating, and it was a pretty accurate depiction. Another one that I really liked that was more focused on television is Broadcast News with William Hurt and yeah, Holly Hunter. That. Yeah, it was really an 80s. accurate depiction. That movie came out sometime in the '80s, and it was that's when I started my my television career. And it's amazing. I, I just watched it again in the, within the past year. And we've gone way beyond videotapes and all those things. But it's just fun to watch it. And I go, God, that is exactly how we used to do uh, the news. And some of the, the stereotypes are very accurate about the producers and the, some of the pretty boy news anchors who don't have any journalism chops at all, but they can read the news. And then you've got some of the reporters who are doing all the real work of gathering the news and they don't get nearly the money or the fame that the anchors do. It's just, it's really an accurate depiction. So, and then in more recent vintage, the movie uh, Spotlight uh, about, um, you know, uncovering the sexual abuse in the Catholic church Hmm. uh, was a, a very well done movie. And then one from back in my college days that I remember as a journalism student at the university of St. Thomas, um, I, I did a, uh, some kind of a, a, a assignment on this. I think it was we were trying to uh, do um, newspaper critical journalism, like if you were a movie reviewer. And I reviewed uh, the uh, movie Absence of Malice with Paul Newman. Great <laughs> yes. movie from yes. the early 1980s. Those are all movies that I would recommend that I thought really were accurate and really captured Things. You know, China syndrome was interesting, but I think some of the TV uh, reporter coverage, Jane Fonda, it was a little too much of a caricature. Right. Entertaining, no question about that. But um, 
just a, there's a lot of good journalism movies out there. There's a lot of crap too, but the, those are some that I think are, are pretty good portrayals. Well, we can stay away from the bad ones then. Yeah. <laughs> I could spend two hours with you, Tom, uh, but you have to chase down stories. Uh, give us one more time the title of your book for those out shopping in downtown Northfield during our Christmas season. And, and, absolutely, and, and you know what? You don't even need to be a big Jesse Ventura fan to enjoy this book because it's a lot about Minnesota politics and how we got to that place. It's called Inside the Ropes with Jesse Ventura. You can find it on uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. If you're at your local bookstore, they can order it for you. Um, it's through the University of Minnesota Press, so it's a good locally published book. And uh, I, I think people will be entertained by it. And if nothing else, it's a great history lesson a great interesting conversation we've got to wrap it up here tom bruce and i and rich want to thank you for the conversation and insights this morning and that will conclude this week's edition of public policy this week we're on kymn radio am 1080 and fm 95.1 each friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m I'm Bruce Merlin, and my co-host today has been Joe Moravchek. Don't forget to join us next week when we discuss elections and the process of voting in the state of Minnesota. And we may answer some of the questions that were raised earlier in this uh, episode. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Thank you for joining us. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.